Hello and welcome to this episode of Congress Talks, a podcast bringing you the latest news from the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. I'm Aileen O'Mara and in this episode, Peter Bunting on how the Northern Ireland Committee of Congress played a big role in fighting the Tories' welfare cuts. It's to create that political, stable society in which we can grow an economy, in which everybody can benefit. Unless we have that, we will never get to the end of the peace project. And how building the peace is a worldwide campaign. We've canvassed the American trade unions, our colleagues in, in, in the British Isles, Europe, and also then we have obviously met with Charles Flanagan and, and, and people like that here in the government in, in, in the Republic of Ireland. And tackling bogus self-employment in the construction industry. They don't even have the protection in this situation of the minimum wage, so they can be paid whatever uh, the, the principal contractor uh, chooses to pay them. They have no entitlement actually to weekly wages, to a pay slip, and quite often these workers are left for weeks uh, waiting for their money and then longer for cheques to clear and so on, and even sometimes uh, they don't get paid at all. But first, after 10 weeks of talks and discussions, Northern Ireland's political parties signed the Fresh Start Agreement last week, an important step in moving the region towards a stronger economic and political future. The Northern Ireland Committee of Congress played a significant role in lobbying against the Tory government's plans for huge welfare cuts and lobbied for support for a financial stimulus to boost the economy there. Peter Bunting, Assistant General Secretary of Congress, told me what the agreement means. The main elements uh, primarily are that there are still going to be welfare cuts, uh, not, uh, I would assume, uh, as the Tories wish, wish to do. There is additional money in comparison to the Stormont House Agreement of, of, of last year. There's still a view about uh, corporation tax coming in, which we're opposed to. And in that sense, again, I think there is a clause in there which mentions affordability, which I don't think uh, corporation tax will ever see the light of day, because Northern Ireland cannot afford it. Uh, there is, again, some other funding which is there and about borrowing. Uh, the number of people who we assumed uh, were going to be um, victims, I think, of the voluntary exit package in in Northern Ireland, particularly in the the public sector, seems to have been reduced down to around 7,000 with a maximum of 10. So that's that's a bonus because we were saying probably around 20,000. So there may may also be money out of the 700 million allocated to that available then for reinvestment into the creation of jobs. The other element then is, is the big problem for us really is the absence of dealing with the legacy which came about primarily from from the position of the British claiming national security, uh, and that's a difficulty mm. for and all the victims, victims. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's a huge difficulty for them, which, which, which is understandable in the context sure. of Northern Ireland. Does it go far enough for us? I don't think it does, but <laughs> we have to balance it up then with the view uh, that we also produced a document during the hiatus there during the year of uh, the devolutionary process. If you don't have devolution, then you have direct rule. So the big, big, difficult problem we have to answer is where do we position our response as the trade union movement? Now, part of our campaign for the last 10 weeks has to be that devolution is crucial to the survival of Northern Ireland. So therefore, I think we have to be very, very careful as to where we position ourselves. And part of that, I think, trade off with both the those who will take over in the Deputy First Minister and First Minister's role, is how fruitful can we get real engagement which will make a difference to our membership. And I think that is something which we 
have to also play a role in it because we have to get some gains for our members. Mm-hmm. And Congress, is, you know, we have played a huge role. I mean, there is that space, isn't there, trying to create the space for agreement because Northern Ireland is different to the Republic. You know, we know that. It's just, it's, it's a very different political space, isn't it? It's a hugely different political space altogether. Uh, and what we've been doing, of course, over the last number of years is we have been particularly working with our, our colleagues in the TUC, the Scottish Trade Union Congress and the Welsh Trade Union Congress, about attempting to get unity among the devolved administrations to put pressure on the Tory government then, that first of all to oppose the cuts and oppose austerity, which we will always continue to do, uh, but then how can we utilise uh, that strength of the devolved administrations to put pressure on the Tory administration, which really is at the heart and the core of the austerity package. I think the likes of the SDLP, elements of, of the Ulster Unionist Party, the Alliance, the Sinn Féin and some other, the Green Party, for example, would be opposed to austerity. But that's not the hand they've been dealt with. So we have to recognise that. Uh, but we also have to, <laughs> have to deal with the fact that it's real politic in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. So what we've been doing for the last, just, just briefly, and, and I've, I've given you a document, we've, we've had an emergency resolution carried at uh, the uh, European Trade Union Congress in Paris four or five weeks ago seeking um, a resolution to the political impasse and looking for financial stimulus and, and, and accepting acceptance that, that austerity is, is, is bad for Northern Ireland. We have also then been, been very uh, crucial to working with our friends in the business community, the farming community and the community and the voluntary sector in, 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 a, in, in an organisation called Concordia, which issued a statement as well, um, condemning austerity, saying that austerity is bad for Northern Ireland and we need to grow the economy in Northern Ireland, and we can't do that in an atmosphere of austerity. So we have that as well. And then I also work as a, ste- a member of a steering committee for a, a whole range of, of, of other people in what's called the, the um, community society network. Uh, and what that does really is, is, is work in the same way as the trade union movement, but also working to build peace as well. So it's, it's crucial. We have a role in one sense in Northern Ireland as well, which is unique to us, and that is... We have to be part of the Building the Peace project, which is not, not finalised by any stretch of the imagination. We have utilised the term always, constantly over the last number of years, that we're a society emerging from conflict, we're not a post-conflict society. That phrase has now got total utilisation by everyone, so that's something we've made into it. We've canvassed the American trade unions, our colleagues in, in the British Isles, Europe, and also then we have obviously met with Charles Flanagan and, and, and people like that here in the government in, in, in the Republic of Ireland. I mean, you mentioned that document, Why Northern Ireland is Different. So I can get that information. Yeah. People can get more about this. Uh, they can indeed. They can get on that on, on, on our websites. They can get copies of all the documentation, which, which I've spoken about. And there's a whole range of them. There's four or five or six, probably there's more even than that, which we have published over the last number of, of weeks. That's a very crucial document. Because mm, I tell you what why that Northern was. Ireland is Different. It's, yeah. yeah, because you'll always get a, an argument. And we've had a lobby, for example, in Westminster. Yeah. Uh, and the, the thing the English MPs will always, and quite rightly say to you, well, we're experiencing poverty and, and, and yeah. marginalisation sure. in North East England or North West England mm-hmm. and big, huge Germany. So why are you different? And then we put out the, the differences that we're still a society emerging from conflict. And then we work out the fact very clearly that something in the region of, and it's in there in a pie chart in, in, in documentation, around 47% of people in Northern Ireland have known someone who's been injured or died in the conflict. That's half. Which is, yeah. One in two. Yeah. So what you're looking at then is we have a high highest rate of mental health of any region in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Or one of the six who suffer from mental health problems. 
we have a, a suicide rate, and listen to this statistic, which is really frightening, is 70% higher than the next highest region in the United Kingdom. So those are issues why we're different. We have huge costs in sectarianism. We have huge costs of security, which all come out of our budget, out of the block grant. So one of the downsides, by the way, of having policing and justice devolve is that you're responsible for, for the money, and that's why there's some additional money in, in, in this document. So those are all a lot of issues which float around, uh, and you'll see them written down there, then we have public mm. service. There was a huge dependency on that because of the ill health and, 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 and that issue, and, and people uh, die uh, a lot earlier than they do in the rest of Britain as well. So all those statistics put together, and the poverty levels are huge. So what we need to do, and it's not a handout we need, it's a handle. It's to create that political, stable society in which we can grow an economy, mm-hmm. in which every, everybody can benefit. Unless we have that, we will never get to the end of the peace project. Peter Bunting, thanks very much. I know we'll be coming back to the subject again. Peter Bunting there. And if you want to read that document he referred to, Why Northern Ireland is Different, you can find it on the Northern Ireland Committee of Congress's own website, ig2ni.org forward slash publications. Now, in the Republic, the economy may be starting to lift again and the construction industry is expanding. So it's timely that Congress is highlighting a huge issue for the construction industry, bogus self-employment. This is where workers are being designated as self-employed when in reality they're full-time workers. So they're losing out on employment protections and social insurance cover, while some major employers are not paying the PRSI and tax that's due. Industrial Officer Fergus Whelan explains. Well, bogus self-employment is where, say for instance, you take uh, some of the trades in construction like uh, bricklaying and carpentry and uh, electricians. Let's, let's stick, stick with bricklayers for, for, uh, for the moment. Uh, the traditional way for a bricklayer to be employed in the construction industry is they present themselves on a construction project that needs bricklayers. They become employees, they work uh, till the job is finished and then they go and find uh, another job. Uh, what's happening these days is when a bricklayer presents uh, at a site, say a school building or a project, a similar project, uh, they won't be offered employment. They'll be offered bogus self-employment. They will be told that uh, they will be paid uh, as if they're a, um, a contractor. And uh, unfortunately, Revenue have a, a, a computerised system now where all this, the um, principal contractor has to do is say, uh, I've entered into instead of employed 30 bricklayers, I've entered into a contract with 30 individuals uh, to do bricklaying work for me. Now, those people will work uh, on the job eight hours a day or more under the control of uh, the employer. It's clearly employment. It is not self-employment. It is bogus self-employment. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of effects uh, on the worker who takes that decision. First of all, they have no protection, they have no rights, they have no pension scheme, they have no holiday pay. Uh, uh, they, uh, they can be paid basically. They're, they're not, they don't even have the protection in this situation of the minimum wage. So they can be paid whatever uh, the, the principal contractor uh, chooses to pay them. Also, um, they have no entitlement actually to weekly wages, to a pay slip. And quite often these workers are left for weeks uh, waiting for their money and then longer for checks to clear and so on and even sometimes uh, they don't get paid at all. Now this system, this bogus self-employment system has been around for a long time 
but it has got really very, very uh, significantly worse uh, really since the recession. Uh, and particularly in the opening up after the recession, when the, what should have been, what we should have had was growth in employment. We haven't in construction, we've had growth uh, in uh, um, bogus self-employment. And um, before 2012, if somebody wanted to work as self-employed in the construction industry, they had to sign a form. And on that form, it was very clear that they were giving up their rights to holiday pay and all the protections, the pension scheme, all the things uh, uh, I mentioned previously. Uh, and at least that was some sort of control measure to stop abuse, mm -hmm. because somebody who was opting for this system knew what they were, uh, uh, what they were opting they for. They were saying that they were sole traders, Correct. effectively. Now, all that needs to happen is um, for uh, the principal contractor um, to uh, designate online the other at this if you like at the top of a computer uh, uh, screen or a, a keyboard uh, he can propel somebody who was who should be an employee into bogus self-employment now revenue will say that they write to each person thus designated and ask them give them the opportunity to uh, uh, object and that might sound anybody who knows mm -hmm. nothing about the construction industry that might sound like a control measure uh, that's not a control measure in the construction industry because every worker knows that if they refuse the designation, they don't get the job. Yeah. And that there are a hundred other, other unemployed people out there who'll only be too happy uh, to take the job yeah. at any price. There is agreed criteria. Um, there's eight or nine different ways you can tell the difference between uh, a bogus self-employed person uh, and an employee. Revenue, by the way, have sat down with us and agreed with us that, that those criteria should apply. But at this stage, there's nobody doing the test. Mm -hmm. They accept on face value every person that's designated uh, as uh, self-employed, regardless of the nature of the contract. In, in the old system, you had to sort of opt in to uh, bogus self-employment. Under this new system, uh, you, you, you have to opt out of it, and people are not in a position to opt out. If, if, the, if the only offer they can get of employment is in, on these terms, they're always going to uh, uh, accept that. And by the way, there's a lot of losses involved in this for the state. Uh, I mean, for a start, anybody who's in bogus self-employment, they're not paying any uh, PRSI. There's no social insurance cover. So when they become unemployed, which they will, because it is in the nature of uh, construction work, that the worker will be uh, on the site until the job is finished, and then they will become unemployed. As soon as that person becomes unemployed, they will have no unemployment benefit. Uh, they will, if they have no means... Uh, they will uh, have unemployment assistance, but you and me will be paying uh, for that. And also when they come to uh, uh, the end of their working lives, uh, they won't have a PRSI entitlement that will give them a contributory pension. And again, if they're not to die of starvation, that will fall back on the state. So there's huge losses, both direct and indirect. And, and for instance, I think it's 15% of somebody's earnings uh, between employer and employees goes uh, to PRSI. So um, there are many thousands. Now, we're currently working on a report on this, and I'll be able to be far more specific about that when we publish the report uh, in, the, uh, in a short while. But there are many thousands of people out there working away in the construction who should be paying PRSI uh, and are not. And there's thus a, a very, very significant loss to the Exchequer. Fergus Whelan. All the details of this campaign and others can be found on the Congress website, ic2.ie. 
and to follow us on Twitter at Congress and on Facebook. And thanks for listening. <laughs>